Good morning, friends, wherever you are joining us from. Uh, it is a joy to have you with us. Uh, for those of you who are new to our community, my name is uh, Rich. I'm the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church here in Queens, New York City. And whether you're joining us from Facebook, whether you're joining us on YouTube, whether you're joining us on newlife.nyc, uh, it is great to have you with us. We are in the Eastertide season. We celebrate the truth that Jesus Christ is alive, and because Christ is alive, uh, we can be made alive as well. And we celebrate this Eastertide season. You know, the Easter is not just a, a one-day thing. It's actually a season in the life of the church. Uh, if Lent is 40 days long, Easter uh, is better than Lent. Easter is 50 days long. The feast is always better than the fast. And we celebrate the truth that Christ is risen uh, and we can be risen as well. Now, we're going to be starting a new series today on Romans chapter 8. Just Romans chapter 8 for the next 10 weeks or so. Uh, so much to explore in this passage. It's regarded by many as the most powerful, impactful chapter in all of the Bible, and so there's much to explore uh, in this chapter. But before we get into that chapter, I wanted to give you a quick update. Uh, we have uh, hopes to return to in-person worship this spring, uh, but before we uh, get finalized that decision and when we're going to do it and how we're going to do it, uh, we wanted to get community feedback. Now, we put out a survey earlier this week, and a number of new lifers have responded. We want to get as many new lifers to respond to the survey so that we know best how to respond uh, in, uh, you know, creating these in-person uh, worship gatherings. And so in, your, in the chat section on YouTube and in the chat section on Facebook, the survey is linked there. Don't click on it right now, all right? Stay with me here. But at the end of our service, make sure you click on that and take about five minutes to respond to that survey. It'll help us to best... Uh, move forward in terms of moving uh, in-person worship this spring. And uh, the hope is that, you know, in the month of May, that's the hope for me, uh, but we'll see how we take, uh, how it all happens. But we need your feedback in order to make a really good informed decision on how we move forward. So please uh, uh, take care of that at the end of our service. Now we're starting Romans chapter 8, uh, uh, verse 1 and verse 2. That's what we're going to focus on. And I'm really just going to be focusing on verse uh, verse 1 today, but uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me there. We're going to be reading uh, out of uh, the NIV translation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I could end the sermon right here, and this is good news for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'm going to focus on that first part here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, Thank you for this good news of no condemnation. And now I pray that by your Holy Spirit, this truth would come alive in us. And so speak through me, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child growing up in Brooklyn in the 1980s, 
there were many abandoned lots in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And if there weren't abandoned lots, what we also found in the neighborhood in East New York were many buildings that were condemned. Buildings that were condemned. For a building to be condemned meant that the building was unfit for human habitation. It wasn't safe to live in. And unless the owner could prove that the problems of the building had been solved and fixed, no one could live in that building. It was condemned. As I thought about growing up in this neighborhood and thought about the signs of condemnation that I saw in the front of buildings, I thought that there was an important connection with our text. Because although we might live in a wonderful home, although we might live in a home that's beautifully furnished, although we might have an apartment or a home in which the exterior and the interior looks really nice, spiritually speaking, many people are living in a condemned building. And it's problematic because we don't have what it takes to fix the problems. We don't have what it takes in ourselves to resolve the problems to make this space habitable. Now, condemnation is a word that we see in the scriptures a few times, and it's a heavy word, biblically speaking. Condemnation biblically means to, to be pronounced guilty and held accountable and punished for our sin. Now, biblically speaking, it's heavy because we can't do anything about it in ourselves. We can't fix this problem ourselves. And, and many people in our society, whether they believe in God or not, live in this way of condemnation. I recognize that people in our society, in a post-Christian society, in a secular society, might not give much thought to the ways of God might not give much thought to the ways of the law of God, might not give thought to the ways of, of the way God would have us to live our lives, and yet we still feel a sense of condemnation. It might not be the weight of God's law that we feel, but we feel often the weight of not living up to our own standards, the weight of not living up to our family standards, our parents' standards, the weight of not living up to a society's standards. We know what it's like to feel condemnation. We know what it's like to carry a sense of emptiness, to carry a sense of guilt living in the world, to carry a sense that I cannot do anything to truly get at what's core to my soul. And so we live with messages that say, I'm not good enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'll always be a failure. And we live with a sense of condemnation. We live in a world in which condemnation is rampant. And it's important to uh, nuance this a little bit because there are some important places for condemnation. Whenever we see stories of anti-Asian violence in the city, we would do well to condemn it. Whenever we hear stories of human and sex trafficking, we would do well as Christians to condemn it. Whenever we see racism and abuse of power, we would do well to condemn it. That's one way of seeing condemnation work in our world. And as Christians, we are called to condemn those things which are inconsistent with the ways of the kingdom of God. 
But there's another kind of condemnation that's not about calling out the ways of abusive sin and the misuse of power for the sake of working for peace. There's another condemnation that's at work within us and between us. The kind of condemnation in which we look at ourselves and we look at one another through the lens of judgment, through the lens of disgust, through the lens of marginalization. It's the kind of, of condemnation that places our world in greater estrangement. It's the kind of condemnation that keeps us marked by shame. It's the kind of condemnation that perpetuates the estrangement we feel with God and often with others. And that's the condemnation that I want to talk about today because it's an important word for the church. Now, sadly, the church has often been known for wielding condemnation. Church leaders have often used threats of condemnation to control others, threats of condemnation to shame others, threats of condemnation to convert others. But the way to salvation and transformation is not through condemnation. The way to raising healthy children is not through condemnation. The way to creating a healthy community is not through condemnation. The way to reaching a world that's lost is not through the way of condemnation. The way to transformation and salvation is in the good news that there's no condemnation. This is good news for us. The way to transformation in our world and transformation in our lives, the way to salvation in the world and salvation in our lives is in the good news that there is no condemnation. Because in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from condemnation. Somebody type amen in the chat section. All right, uh, we're going into it now. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 8, gets at this incredibly powerful truth that there is no condemnation. Now, Paul, for those of us who are not familiar with the Bible, Paul is a guy in the scriptures who's one of the most important figures in Christianity. At one point in his life, Paul was a guy who, uh, who persecuted Christians. He believed that people who were followers of Jesus were doing it wrong, that they were going against the God who was revealed in ancient Israel, revealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Paul would gather around people to arrest and to kill and to persecute Christians. But one day as he's on this road to do exactly those things, the risen Jesus Christ encounters him. And he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That to persecute my people is to persecute me. And Paul at that moment, because of the glory of God, he goes blind. And Paul needs someone to pray for him, for him to see again. There's a Christian who comes on the scene and lays hands on Paul. And Paul sees and Paul becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. He would take on that zeal to reach others for Christ. He would begin to write letters to the church to help them understand what it means to be in relationship with Christ, what it means to live in the way of the kingdom of God. And this is what the book of Romans is. The book of Romans is actually not a book. It's actually a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of churches in that particular area to help them get their theology straight 
to help them love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And when we get to chapter 8, we see Paul unpacking so much important theology that we're going to take 10 weeks to explore it. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beautiful, theologically robust uh, chapters in all of the Bible. But it begins with the words, therefore. This chapter begins with the word, therefore. And I'm going to take apart this verse uh, for the next uh, 18 minutes or so. Therefore. Now, Paul begins with the word, therefore, and a good Bible reading principle is that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, why is the therefore, therefore? Amen. All right, that's pretty smooth. All right, why is the therefore, therefore? I didn't make that up. That's just a good preacher principle here. Because whenever Paul talks about therefore, he's referring to something that has, become, that has come right before the context that he is about to write in. Before chapter 8, Paul talks about his life before the Spirit works in him in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he writes about his life before being justified by Jesus Christ. And it is a miserable existence for the Apostle Paul. In verse 15 to 24, Paul writes these things about his life before Christ, his life before being justified, his life before receiving the Spirit. And he says these words, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Go to the next slide for me. Paul then says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if it is I, if it, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Go to that last slide for me there. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Paul in Romans chapter 7, here he is, he cannot get out of his own way. He wants to do good, but there's something else at work in him. He finds himself a prisoner to something. He cannot shake this thing in his own strength, and he finds himself living in bondage. Reading Romans chapter 7, reminded me of a book that I'm currently reading by a Hungarian Jewish medical doctor named Gabor Matei, and he writes a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it's a book on addiction, a particular area in Vancouver, Canada, which is known as one of the greatest epicenters of addiction, drug addiction and such. And in this book, he writes about the heart-wrenching conversation he has with drug addicts. It's a very challenging book to read because of the stories. And one of the conversations he had, he had it with a guy named Jake. And when you read Jake's testimony of his struggle with drugs, it sounds like Romans chapter 7. 
In one of the conversations, Jake, a drug addict, says, I care more about the dope than my loved ones or anything else. For the past 15 years, it's part of me now. It's part of my every day. I don't know how to be without it. I don't know how to live everyday life without it. You take it away, I don't know what I'm going to do. If you were to change me and put me in a regular style life, I wouldn't know how to retain it. I was there once in my life, but it feels like I do not know how to go back. And I don't have any stop Smith sentence. It's not the will I don't have. I just don't know how. Here this man is stuck. And many of us are stuck as well. Paul is stuck as well in Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, when he talks about the bondage that he's in, he's not talking about a bondage to compulsive shopping. He's not talking about bondage to gossip. He's not talking about bondage to workaholism, bondage to drug addiction, bondage to sexual addiction. He's talking about something much larger, much deeper than these things. He's talking about his bondage to sin. Bondage to sin. And this is important that we nuance what we get at when Paul is trying to get at with sin because one of the problems in the church is that we often talk about sins without the language and framework of sin. Stay with me here. We talk about sins without the language of sin. Let me say it this way. One of the ways to keep someone trapped in sin is to simply address sins. But sins are the expression of something much deeper that is sin. And Jesus came to free us from the sin beneath our sins. Now, some of you are probably scratching your head right now going, what in the world are you talking about? Let me explain a little bit further. When the Bible talks about sin, it does so in a couple of ways. When we think about sin, we often categorize it as things that we do. We lie, we steal, we lust, we kill. We do these things and we call it sin. But think about it this way. Those things that I just talked about are really to be sins with a lowercase s. It's the things that we do. But that's just one way to talk about sin. There's another way to talk about sin, to see sin in a, as a capital S, in which it's not just something that we do, it's something that we are trapped in. It's something that we are in bondage to. It's something that's holding this world captive. Whenever Paul talks about sin and death, he's not just talking about the things we do. He's talking about the powers that hold this world captive. And so sin with a capital S is a power. It's a force. It's a stronghold. And Paul knows that he needs to be delivered from this capital S sin. Now, this is important for us to remember because you can overcome certain sins, lowercase s, but still be caught in sin, capital S. This is why we should never compare our sins to others. You can stop stealing, but still be caught in capital S sin. You can stop gossiping, but still be caught in capital S sin because the gospel is not simply about behavior modification. The gospel is about our transformation and our salvation. And you can have behavior modification, but not have salvation. 
You can have behavior modification, but not have transformation. And Paul recognizes in order to be saved and transformed, it's not just me stopping certain behaviors. I need to be rescued out of something. And so Paul in chapter 7 is in a bad place. He knows he does not have the power to free himself. Paul knows that education is not going to fix this thing. Paul knows that having so-called good theology is not going to fix this thing. Paul knows that moral progress is not going to fix this thing. We need to be reminded of this regularly. Education is fantastic. You're not going to find someone who's more pro-education than I am, but education is not strong enough for sin. When we look at the world and see racism in the world or what have you, people often think if we just had more people educated, racism will be eradicated. But education is not strong enough for the power of sin. Policies that work for greater justice are needed every single day. But good policies are not strong enough for the power of sin. Spiritual disciplines are critically important for us to live according to, but spiritual disciplines are not strong enough for the power of sin. The only power that can handle sin is found outside of ourselves. The only power that can handle sin is found in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to bring about salvation. Only Jesus Christ can handle sin, which is why at the end of chapter 7, Paul says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's referencing everything that just took place in Romans chapter 7. Something has happened in Jesus Christ. Sin has been overcome in Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Now, some of you might be asking, if he defeated sin, why is there still war? Why is there still disease? Why is there still racism? Why is there still injustice in the world? And the good theological answer to that is that in Christ, the kingdom of God has come already, but it's not fully here. That we wait for his return to fully and finally reign, to fully eradicate sin and death. But we get a sneak preview of what's to come when Christ fully and finally reigns. But in the meantime, as we wait for him to come back and restore all things and fulfill all things, we are called to live in this new age, in this new realm, in this new reality. And in this new age, in this new realm, in this new reality, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who have attached their lives to Jesus Christ. Christ takes upon the punishment of sin on his body. That's what we celebrated last week. And in so doing, conquers the powers of sin and death. This is important because sin is not just a force holding the world captive. 
One of the things that sin condemns, that sin does, is that it condemns. And so if you're captive to sin, it means you are in the realm of condemnation. But if you belong to Christ, there is no condemnation. What's this mean? Very, very simply, it, it means these three things. A friend of mine, Glenn Packiam, highlighted this, and I, I just loved how he articulated what it means that there's no condemnation. I want you to drink in these words. No condemnation means that you know what the verdict on you is going to be. You know ahead of time, before judgment day comes, when Christ returns, you know ahead of time what the verdict on you is already going to be. It means that you don't have to live in fear or uncertainty. It means that God has made up his mind about you already. Amen. God has made up his mind about you already. The sad reality of our lives is that we live as if God has not made up our mind. We live as if God changes his mind depending on how we live. And so we have this, he loves me, he loves me not kind of relationship. I prayed, he loves me. I didn't pray, he loves me not. I read my Bible, he loves me. I haven't read my Bible, he loves me not. I've been watching New Life Church. When the service starts at 1030 online, he loves me. This is my first time watching New Life in a long time. Oh, he loves me not. No, no, no. We often believe that God sees us and loves us based on our performance. But in Christ, God has made up his mind about you. He's made up his mind about you. There are certain things that when I make up my mind about it, you cannot change my opinion. <laughs> there are certain things in my life I've made up my mind. For example, I've made up my mind that pineapples do not belong on pizza. Amen. I, my mind is made up, brothers and sisters. Someone say amen in the chat section. Amen. My mind is made up that pineapples do not belong on pizza. My mind is made up. I'm a Mets fan. I'm a suffering Mets fan. I am. But I, my mind has been made up. My mind is made up that dogs are better than cats. You will never change my mind on this. I feel the spirit moving right now. And some of you are upset right now, too, but that's all right. I feel the spirit. I feel the spirit. My mind is made up already. Now, all of this is silly stuff, but let me say this. What's powerful is that you cannot change God's mind about you. God has already made up his mind about you in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's made up his mind about you. There is a de definitive truth to that statement. It's a truth that essentially says, you're, I, you cannot change it because I am so for you. My mind is made up. Now, the sad reality of our lives is that we look at that verse and we say, Amen. But our lived experience of that verse often contradicts what we believe theologically. How is it? 
that we could say there's no condemnation on Sunday, but then on Monday when you get criticized by your boss, on Monday when your spouse or someone says something to you, a word of criticism or correction, you go into a hole. How is it that on, one, on the one hand we can say no condemnation, but on the other live as if this is not true? And what I understand in my own life is that there's often these other messages that if we do not learn how to boundary them in the name of Jesus, they will so overwhelm our lives. Psychologically speaking, there's a, a very helpful phrase uh, known as the inner critic. The inner critic. And the inner critic is, is this interior voice that all of us have that essentially says, you'll never make it. You'll always be a failure. You'll never be a success. You are a disappointment. You'll never be as good as this kind of person, whoever it is. And sometimes the inner critic comes because of the messages that we've heard growing up. But this, these, this inner critic is so deeply ingrained in our souls. Some of you look at your life and your decisions and the inner critic within fills you with so much shame. You look at your financial decisions and the ways that you have mishandled finances and you just feel this inner critic heaping loads of shame on you. You think about opportunities to pursue something in the past, but because of fear or whatever it is, you carry seasons of regret. Why didn't I say yes to that? And you feel like such a failure. Maybe you've been trapped in addictive behaviors and the inner critic is having the best of you and just working you over. It's so easy for us to say on, one, on the one hand, there's no condemnation, but live condemnation. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, he captures it in a really powerful way. He says these words, one of the most shocking contradictions in Christian living is the intense dislike many disciples of Jesus have for themselves. They are more displeased, impatient, irritated, unforgiving, and spiteful with their own shortcomings than they would ever dream of being with someone else's. They are fed up with themselves, sick of their own mediocrity, disgusted by their own inconsistency, bored by their own monotony. They would never judge any other of God's children with the savage self-condemnation with which they crushed themselves. Through experiencing the relentless tenderness of Jesus, we learn, first of all, to be gentle with ourselves. There have been so many times, even this past week, that I've had to say, no condemnation. As a pastor, the vast majority of feedback that I get as a pastor is overwhelmingly positive. So many of you have encouraged me. Pastor Rich, thank you for that message. That was great. It blessed me. Thank you all. The, the messages that I get overwhelmingly as a pastor are positive. And then there are some negative ones. And I know what it's like to see those negative comments or whatever it is, the criticisms, and start going down a hole. And it's in these moments that I'm reminded in Romans chapter 8, no condemnation. 
God has already made up his mind. My identity is not based on my success or my failures. My identity is solidly based on the love of God. There's no condemnation. Let me close with one story from the scriptures that really illustrate this powerful truth. As the church, we celebrate Eastertide. Eastertide is the season in which we celebrate the resurrection and pay attention to the post-resurrection conversations Jesus had with his disciples. And in the, uh, the, in the scriptures, in the gospels, there are a number of times in which Jesus encounters his disciples as the resurrected Lord. He encounters them in a room, in an upper room, while they are scared for their lives. And he looks at Thomas and says, touch my hands, touch my side, it is me. In one occasion, he's on the road to Emmaus. Two people are on the road to Emmaus having a conversation. Jesus joins them, has a little Bible study to talk about the Messiah and all the things that the Messiah would experience suffering for the world. On a number, another occasion, Jesus comes up to his disciples because he's cooking breakfast for them. He's making them a wonderful meal, and the disciples come and have a meal with Jesus. Every time Jesus encounters someone in the post-resurrection encounters, it's usually in the context of a group. But then there is one occasion where Jesus speaks to one person, his disciple named Peter. After Jesus makes them breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, can, can you and I just have a one-on-one for a second? Now, if you're Peter, this is like the teacher saying to you, uh, wait for me after class, I just want to have a conversation. Those conversations never go well. And so Jesus says, can we have a conversation? Peter must be thinking, this is going to be bad news. Why? Because just a few days ago, Peter betrayed and denied Jesus. He denied him. When Jesus needed him most, Peter denied him. Peter would say, Lord, I'll never deny you. And a few seconds later, someone came up to Peter as Jesus was arrested and said, aren't you one of those Jesus followers? Peter said, no, no, that's not me. Another person came, aren't you one of those followers? Don't you, aren't you in relationship with him? Peter said, no, no, don't know the guy. A third time, someone says, hey, aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus? And Peter, like he curses and says, I don't know the guy. This is fresh in Peter's mind. Jesus speaks to him and Peter's probably about to think, Jesus is about to say, what happened? Why why did you deny me? But instead of Jesus bringing up Peter's sin, he asked Peter three questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you, Lord. He asked him the same question. Do you love me? He said, I I do. He says, "Feed feed my sheep. Then the third time, Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, dang it, I do, I said. It's beautiful because it's like Jesus is helping Peter cancel out the three denials by offering three confessions of love. What's even more beautiful is that nowhere in that conversation does Jesus have to tell Peter he loves him. Why? Because his mind has been made up and is always made up. What Jesus is doing in there is not trying to change 
his mind about Peter. He's trying to get Peter to change his mind about him. Jesus comes up to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In other words, Peter, I've always loved you. The question is, are you going to return it this way? God has already made up his mind about you. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And we are called to live in the freedom of that truth. This week, I want to give you an opportunity to live into this truth. This week, when you open yourself to prayer, you're going to probably hear words of condemnation from yourself, from the evil one, messages that are so ingrained in you that you'll always be a failure, you'll never measure up. And every time those messages come, would you very gently say, no condemnation. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has already made up his mind about me. God has already made up his mind about me. Lord, help me to make up my mind about myself in light of this truth. Because there's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, in a world that is so dominated by acts and words of condemnation, what good news this is that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. God, you've already made up your mind about us, up about us. And may we live in the truth of the freedom of that passage. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so may we live in this realm of no condemnation. Give us the grace to do it by the power of your Spirit. Amen. I want you to hear that good news, friends, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can live free from the burden of the condemnation that so often dominates our world. As we close our service, I want to help you move in a particular direction. At the end of the service, we're going to have a time of sermon discussion, as we have been doing in recent weeks. And maybe God's word has been speaking to you today. Maybe you find yourself trapped in sin and you realize good behavior is not going to rescue me from this. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to snatch me out. I need to trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe you, want, you need a space to talk about that. We have our sermon discussion link that's on the chat section there. We'd love to have a conversation with you. In addition to that, some of you are watching right now and your heart has been awakened. You're sensing, I need to be rescued. I need transformation. I need salvation. And you sense God speaking to you. We want to help you on that journey. And on the screen, there's a very simple phone number that you could text the phrase, yes to Jesus. And one of our pastors will be in touch with you to help you on your journey. 
And so if you've been living a life marked by condemnation, good news, you don't have to live that way anymore. There's freedom for you. God has already made up his mind about you. And you can live in that truth by saying yes to Jesus. And so text yes to Jesus to that number. We would love to serve you on your journey. As we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end every gathering with blessing because it's a phrase. It's really a posture of receiving no condemnation. The world is marked by all kinds of condemnation, all kinds of marginalization, disgust, judgment. But in Christ, we want to receive the gift of no condemnation and offer it to the world around us. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing in the deepest part of your soul that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all. See you next week.